Catherine Barnard and I'm Professor of EU Law here at the University of Cambridge and I'm also UK and Changing Europe Senior Fellow. Catherine, thank you for joining us at the CBR conference on the post-Brexit Euro referendum. Theresa May yesterday triggered Article 50. What do you make of it all? I see you've been on the phone to the media all day long. So yesterday Article 50 was triggered, which is the start of the process which takes us out of the EU at European Union level. And today what was published was the white paper on the Great Repeal Bill. It's not actually going to be called that because that goes against parliamentary norms, so it's going to just be called the Repeal Bill. And this is the bill which will, first of all, reverse the European Communities Act 1972, which was the act that took us into the European Union. Secondly... It's about giving effect to all of EU law into UK law in respect to those areas where that's not already occurred. And thirdly, it will give power to the executive to amend, repeal, replace those bits of law which don't fit the current British system. Now, it's only a white paper at the moment. It's not the bill itself. The bill will be published in a couple of weeks' time. But the government is calling for people to consult about the content of what's in the white paper. And will there be lots of challenges to it? We've heard Professor David Howarth talk about the complexities with the European to to UK legislation, European legislation, international rights and treaties too. How is the UK government going to weave its way through it? The rhetoric sounds simple, but the realities and the practicalities are complex. Well, that's right. I think the actual logistics of disentangling ourselves from the EU are incredibly large and it will take a considerable period of time, certainly more than the two years that um, the government thinks it can be done in. Optimist? It will be done, but it will take much longer. Thank you. Professor John Bell, University of Cambridge. Professor Bell, thank you very much indeed for talking to the CBR podcast today. We're at the conference looking at the post-political context in the UK of Britain brexiting the European Union. You had a look at Brexit and devolution. Are there going to be major obstacles for the UK to Brexit the EU in terms of what we call the devolved assemblies? Yes. The first problem is that the UK in its negotiations has the power to to make all the treaties. But when the powers return to the UK from the EU, they fall into sometimes into categories where the competence to make decisions in the future lie with the different devolved assemblies. We do not have a uniform system of devolution, so the powers are going to be different between Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. What first needs to be worked out is who is going to be making the decisions post-Brexit on particular areas, such as agriculture, such as the environment, such as research. And then there are also issues about the transition, because the UK government has said that it will take control over certain things, at least temporarily, because that's the most effective way of doing it. To take one example, the agricultural community are entitled to funding from the Common Agricultural Policy until at least the end of 2020. If the UK leaves in 2019, what the UK government has said is that the UK government will pay out 
monies to farmers in all parts of the UK between 2019 and 2020. So there will need to be rules governing the 2019 to 2020 period, but then thereafter, there is the question about how agriculture is governed post-2021, where there will not be uniformity across the UK. And our exports heavily rely at the moment on those European markets. Is that going to be problematic? Or is there this wonderful Commonwealth market that exists all over the world? Can we just sail off and say we're going to do trade with India or China or the rising sun economies of the BRICS? How important is it for us to keep hold of those European markets? The first thing is that we need to, in the short term, maintain existing markets, say for because 75% of our exports in farm products go to the EU, because we haven't yet got all these other markets. It will take a significant amount of time to establish the free trade agreements that we need with the other countries, so that there's a transition problem, but also demand and transport costs suggest that we will always want to maintain relations with countries close to us. We always have since medieval times, and it is unlikely that we are suddenly wanting to send nothing. We are going, it, it is logistically closer for Kent to, to, to ship stuff to Belgium than it is to send it to Wales or Scotland. So that will continue as a, as a dynamic. Um, do you have a view on trade deals before we come on to the devolved assemblies and the power of the Treasury? There seems to be varying opinions on whether we need trade deals. Apparently America doesn't have one with Europe and we don't have one with America. Do we need trade deals? We will need trade deals to, to cover two things. One is quantities and tariffs. And the other is agreements about regulations that cover the quality of goods. One of the issues, to go back to your US thing, is because the US has different rules about genetically modified crops, a lot of things cannot come across into Europe because Europe has different rules on genetically modified crops. We are likely in the UK to end up with different rules on the same thing between Scotland, Northern Ireland and England. So there may be issues about whether genetically modified crops from the US can go into Scotland. The answer is no. They can go into England, but they can't go into Scotland. So having agreements makes things clearer and also ensures that there are no particular tariff barriers that will occur. Headache. There's another issue you pointed out, which if you just look at that one industry of agriculture, it's going to be governed by a lot of different select committees, and they each have attitude in terms of the reports they d deliver. But there isn't going to be clearly defined responsibilities. Well, the responsibilities are going to be often with the devolved assemblies because agriculture not only is the cost of production, it is also the labor movement in and out of the country to work and the industries. It is also the management of the rural environment 
and planting of trees, maintenance of habitats and so on, which are obligations which farmers undertake under the common agricultural policy at the moment and for which they get money. So the responsibility for the environmental stuff is going to be predominantly with uh, the devolved assemblies and therefore there is going to be an issue about how far, say, Westminster can keep an eye on how things are going. Actually, Westminster may end up being in the areas of environment and farming limited to talking to ministers who effectively only have competence in England. But in terms of the free movement of persons to work in the UK, that will be the Home Office Committee, which is a very much a UK-wide committee. As I understand it, the UK government, clearly Theresa May and her team, the Brexiteering team will be in charge of the negotiations. But then when it comes to the implementation of whatever they decide, that comes down to the devolved assemblies. But then you said at the end that the devolved assemblies would need money to implement this. So back goes the power to the Treasury. Is that correct? Yes, that's essentially. If you think about it, what happens at the moment is the UK contributes to the EU out of an undifferentiated big pot of money provided by the Treasury. It goes to, among other things, the common agricultural policy. When we no longer pay the money to Brussels, the money stays in the UK Treasury. The rules about distributing money may be made by the devolved assemblies about what well, hill farmers get, what um, livestock farmers get, what is paid for habitats. But the money to do that comes at the moment through the Barnett formula, but which will have to be adjusted for these new responsibilities of the devolved assemblies. And the difficulty is that the Treasury does not like paying money to farmers for being farmers. It has announced since 2005 that it wants to get rid of these subsidies, which are effectively three quarters of the common agricultural policy payments. And so there's going to be a big battle between the Treasury that doesn't think these are a good thing and the, the devolved assemblies who say, give us the money because we think they're a good thing. Now, if we just summarise some of the other talks we've heard today, particularly David Howarth, Professor David Howarth, and the legalities and the challenges that can be mentored at any part of the Brexit process, it seems, whether the challenges are within Parliament or outside of Parliament, are you optimistic that, that we're going to be able to cope with the complexities in terms of the agricultural industry of Brexiting the EU? I think we. what will happen is that the government will try to solve the problem by not making any decisions until after we've left. The idea of providing funding in 2019 to 2020 is to give a time span in which a new agricultural settlement will have to be agreed between the UK, the devolved assemblies and the relevant interests in the industry and that this will form a settlement for 2021 forwards. And that actually mirrors what will be happening in the EU because the current settlement in the EU will come to an end in 2020 and a new arrangement will be put in place in 2021 in any case. So 
I suspect what will, they will try to do is to minimize the number of decisions that actually needed to be made in the transition process. Nevertheless, one problem is going to be that some of the powers that are needed to manage the transition are going to need to be given to some minister to just adjust the existing legislation from the EU. And the question is whether that is a minister in Edinburgh or Belfast or Cardiff, or whether that is a UK minister sitting in London. My view would be if you're not going to pass proper legislation, that will have to be given to the ministers and devolved assemblies. And that means that they could do things differently. So the jury's out in your mind? The jury's out. I think it's a question of goodwill, but I think the worry at the moment is that it does not appear that there is a common position between the UK government and the devolved assemblies about what the future for a number of areas are, including agriculture. And we did hear Brendan Sims saying he thought Nicola Sturgeon was right to ask for another uh, referendum on being part of the UK. Any views on that? Uh, I think that's probably right. She's right to ask. My worry is much more two or three years after Brexit that there might be a border poll in Northern Ireland. And the Irish nightmare is that the Northern Irish will vote to join the Republic. Well, the jury certainly isn't out. Uh, Professor John Bell, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you very much. Brendan Sims, Professor of the History of European International Relations and Director on the Forum on Geopolitics at the University of Cambridge. And your book is called? It's called Britain's Europe, A Thousand Years of Conflict and Cooperation. Well, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Centre for Business Research podcast series, looking at the post-Brexit UK. Put aside the differences on whether we Brexit the UK or we don't and how you voted and what the vote was. Theresa May has this week triggered Article 50. We're going to leave the EU. Do you think historically we're going back to a future that the UK knew when it was independent from the European Union? It's not new for us to be independent from the Europe and the European Union, is it? No, absolutely not. I mean, if you think of Britain's relationship with Europe, it's very different from the European experience on, on the continent, on the mainland, for the simple reason that Europe, as it were, is the problem in British history, and the United Kingdom is the answer, whereas in mainland Europe, Europe is the problem and the European Union is the answer. So that's a very different point of departure. Historically and geopolitically, can you take us through some of that independent, distinctive United Kingdom history? Because you said the United Kingdom is an entity, but Europe is not. Well, the United Kingdom is a full political union, which the European Union is not. So... The United Kingdom is not a nation-state, it's a union of nations, and it began effectively in 1707 with the Anglo-Scottish Union, which formed a full parliamentary defence and debt union, uh, which created an extremely strong actor in Europe and the world. Now, the European Union, for all its many merits, um, is not a full parliamentary military or debt union. And many of the problems associated with the absence of such a union is what we're seeing today. The failure to deter outside threats, for example, Putin's Russia, the failure to deal with the Eurozone debt crisis and so on. So you don't seem surprised that the Conservative Party over 30 years has been split over Europe. Even the Labour Party mm. has, because that's historically yes. the positions we came from. 
Well, exactly right. I mean, uh, Europe has been the central point of contestation in first British and then English politics before that for hundreds of years. I mean, in the 18th century, the main difference, or one of the really important differences between Whigs and Tories was the question of Europe. Whigs favoring continental alliances, for example, and Tories um, opposing them. Likewise, in the 17th century, one of the really important issues separating Crown from the parliamentary side was uh, differences over uh, policy within Europe. You began your talk by referring to Theresa May's speech. Mm. Yesterday, there's been a new speech while this mm. conference has been going on by David Davis and mm. the great Brexit reform bill. But you quoted that there were six references in her speech to security and three to trade, mm. a stat that others have mentioned on the mm. news last mm. night and this morning too. Does that surprise you, or do you think she's got a point that we do pay more into NATO, so therefore we have a right to expect something back from Europe? I think that's correct. I think there is a, a sense in which the European order is based on two pillars, one of which is the European Union, the other of which is NATO. And just as, in a sense, Britain would like to cherry-pick within the European Union, that is having access to the single market but not accepting immigration the way the European Union would like, in the same way, the rest of Europe cherry-picks on defence, because, of course, it allows itself to be defended by the Anglo-Americans and doesn't pay anything like its 2% commitment under NATO. So you don't see her written Article 50, note to leave, as being threatening. I think one headline was she was holding a gun to Europe's head. You see it as part of our continuity and history. We do give more to defence, therefore yeah. we shouldn't just sacrifice trade without showing that, that we've got some muscle too, and that muscle is in the area of defence. Exactly right. It's, it's, not a, it's not a threat, but it's simply a reminder of, of the geopolitical realities and that what we should be looking at is not a narrow trade negotiation, but what in Ireland we call the totality of the relationships. That's really what's at stake here. And as a historian, has there ever been a period in history like this before? We've heard Professor David Howarth and others, the lawyers, talk about how it's so complex to unravel our own legislative programme from the EU. Has historically there been anything like it? Well, I think the legal com complexities probably are unique. But if you think of the Reformation, which was a great unravelling on the religious side and the church side, that was a very complex operation. And as regards the geopolitical patterns, well, they've remained, as I, I think I've indicated, they've remained rather constant um, over time. So it is about 500 years since we've had anything like it. Yes, that's about the shape of it. <laughs>